0: Can we pray, please? Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the many ways that we can worship you. And now we move into just learning from your word. And we just pray for an anointing on Rod and his words and that we would hear what you have to say and teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I, uh, I talk to other pastors at other churches sometimes, and one of the things that they bemoan a lot is, where are all the 20-somethings and college students? <laughs> I feel really guilty about that. <laughs> but I just bless God, um, not that so many of them are here, but what you're about. It inspires me, and um, I see the, the, the missionary zeal that was in the Apostle Paul that caused him to just go all over the world with the gospel. I see it in you, and I want that zeal to be in me and in all of us, whether we're going on a plane somewhere across an ocean or across our street, that we would have this zeal, this missionary zeal. Uh, for Christ, his gospel, and for lost people. So I I thank you, college students, for for doing that. Also, what John and Rosa are talking about with this perspectives class, I remember I took this class uh, when I was in seminary, and I took it simply because I was a high school pastor at the time, and it was at our church. So I'm thinking, wow, I don't have to drive all the way to seminary. It's perfect. That thing rocked my world. I did not know what I was stepping into because what it did is it it, it captures God's heart going all the way back to Abraham, all the way to the moment as to what God is doing in the world to reach the world for for Christ. And I really encourage you if you want to get God's heart uh, to be a part of that. Okay, we are coming to the end of our series on the Kings and I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but what we've been studying really takes up the whole middle part of our Bible, especially when you consider that the prophets, all the prophets in the Old Testament are really writing during this time period. And yet, so few Christians, I think, understand this part of the Bible. We, we start at the beginning sometimes, and, and then we go right to the end, but we skip the middle. And what I've found in looking at the middle is that it has really helped me understand that much more the beginning and the end. And, I mean, this is just an awesome story. The Bible starts in Eden. The Bible is going to end in Eden. But what we're looking at now is how it gets there, how God takes it there. So let's go in our Bibles to Second Chronicles 36. And I will be... Uh, jumping around a little bit, but we'll start here, and if you have a blue Bible like mine, this is, this is found on page 333. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jer- Jeremiah the prophet, Again, Jeremiah is during this time. Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made to take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked. He became proud. He would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of both the priests and the people They too became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations, defiling the temple of the Lord. In fact, one of the ways in which the temple was defiled was an ashtray was put right in the Holy of Holies. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised God's word. They scoffed at his prophets until the anger of the Lord was so aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against it the king of the Babylonians who killed their young with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasure of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the kings and his officials. They set fire to God's temple. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces. They destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the next kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, Came to power. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now we uh, didn't read the first half of the chapter, but basically Judah has become a punching bag. I mean, two superpowers are just pounding her. Egypt is on one end, and the Babylonians are on the other end. And I like how the author just kind of -of matter-of-factly puts this. in, In verse 17, he says, Babylonians come, and young and old, man, woman, and child were killed by the sword. So really what you need to imagine here is something that's unimaginable to us. We, we, we really can't imagine this, but it's a bloodbath. It's a bloodbath. In 2 Kings, when you read that, it gives a little bit more detail about this because what we know is that the Babylonians have now replaced the Assyrians as the world's superpower. And what they want is they want Judah to become a vassal state of theirs. So the first thing they do is they come in with their army, they pillage Jerusalem, and they take into captivity 10,000 of their best and brightest. And that right there is the context for the book of Daniel. They then remove the king, and then they put their own king, a puppet king, from the people of Judah as their king. That's Zedekiah. Zedekiah, for some reason, doesn't play the puppet role Instead, he plays the tough guy. He rebels against Babylon. Now it's game over. Because in Second Kings twenty-five verse one, it says Nebuchadnezzar comes a second time with his vast army. He lays, lays siege to Jerusalem for two years. Now siege, laying siege is simply just surrounding a city, cutting off all supply lines, and starving it to death. The text says, four months into this siege, the food runs out. It's gone. This is how Lamentations described, then, the next year or so in the the city of Jerusalem. This is Lamentations 4. The tongue of the suckling infant cleaves to its palate for thirst. Young children beg for bread. No one extends it to them. Those who once feasted extravagantly lie destitute in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet clothing wallow in garbage. Their appearance has become blacker than suit. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled to their bones. It became dry as wood. Hands of compassionate mothers have boiled their own children. They have become their food. And the other prophets speak of this. Fulfills actually what's said in Deuteronomy 28, when God says, when you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to send an army, they're going to lay siege. And it says, because of the suffering of your enemy that he will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of the sons and the daughters the Lord has given to you. Again, we can't even imagine this. I mean, we can't even come close. Look at us. Look how good our life is compared to that. Now, we have to ask this question, like, how does this story get to such a gut-wrenching place? And see, I don't want to in any way excuse the guilt of the people. But Kings and Chronicles is here to teach us that as the king goes, so goes the nation. That's why over and over again you read, and the king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the king did what was displeasing to to God. It's the king who stands as a representative. And here we have it again in our text. Look at verse 12. It said, And Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not humble himself. The king did not listen to God's word. He became proud. He became hard-hearted towards God. And then you skip down to verse 14, and then you see all the leaders under the king, how they're just following their king, because as the king goes, so go the leaders of the land, And yet, in spite of all this unfaithfulness, I want you to see this. God's heart is still trying. It's like God isn't going to give up. He keeps sending them his word. Verse 15 says he has compassion on them. It's like, I can't let you go. And look at the response to this, verse 16. It says, they mocked the word of God and the messengers of God. In fact, Jeremiah, as it's it stated, is one of the prophets during this time, and he's beaten and literally thrown into a pit. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, you know what I'm hoping for? Where's David? Where's King David? Where's, where, where's King Hezekiah? Where's Where's Josiah? Would would, would a king rise up and, and, and call the people to repentance? Call them to sackcloth and ashes. Cleanse the temple. Cleanse the land of the idols. Come in and shepherd God's people. Lead them into the arms of their God. It doesn't happen. The text, in just a matter-of-fact way, it just says Babylonians come, the house of God is burned, the city is destroyed, the people are put to a sword, and those who survive are exiled hundreds of miles away to a foreign city in Babylon. The end. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, this is the last chapter. Imagine if this was the last chapter of our Bible. see, we look at this, and this is the question we have to ask now, okay, now what does this all mean? And I have to say, I just have to be honest with you, that these are hard texts to preach because there's so much that's going on theologically. And I think the last two chapters of, of, of 2 Kings actually give us what this means theologically because seven times in those last two chapters, the word exile is used. Exile simply means to be uprooted from one's home. And then right in the middle of where exile is used seven times, it says this. It says, all the men of Israel fled by night through the king's garden and into the wilderness. In other words, exile in, this, in, in these verses is seen as leaving the king's garden to live in a wilderness. When else does someone get exiled from a garden to live in a wilderness? That's right at the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve. Because what we have at the beginning of the Bible, you have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, Eden, enjoying God's presence It's in this garden where they walk with God in the cool of the day. And it's here where they bring God's rule and God's presence to bear on all the earth. I mean, this is God's intent from the very beginning. This is what you and I were made for. We were made to be God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence and then priesting his presence into all the world. That's why we exist. However, the garden the first time went very, very wrong. And see, what God is now doing is he's fixing through his new Eden and his new Adam and his new garden, everything that went wrong with the first garden. And so the land, the promised land, is the new Eden. The king now is the new Adam. The temple now is the new garden. And it's now through this people that God is going to bring heaven to earth. There to be a kingdom of priests, priesting God's presence into the whole world. But Israel, like Adam, they reject God. They disobey his word. And they're expelled. They're cut off from the garden. But most of all, most of all, they lose God. In fact, I find verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 36 to be very interesting. Look at it. It says the land enjoyed its Sabbath. Sabbath rests all the time of Israel's exile. It rested until the 70 years of Israel's exile were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. You know how long they're going to be in captivity? Anybody know? 70 years. Why does God pick 70 years and not 80 years? Well, God says it right here. You didn't keep Sabbath. And remember, Sabbath for them was more than just the seventh day. It was also the sabbatical year culminating into jubilee. And what God says to them is every seven years, you must rest and the land must rest so that you cannot take yourselves so seriously and you can remember you're just a tenant. I own the land, I'm your God. Do you know how much time elapses between the first king, Saul, and the last king, Zedekiah? Well, do the math of this text and take a guess. Almost exactly 490 years. In other words, during that course of time, 70 sabbaths should have taken place but they didn't so God says if you're not going to obey my Torah you're not going to keep sabbath I'll take care of that I'll give the land rest and see sabbath it, it, it's God's word even maybe more than this sabbath is the sign of the covenant it's a, it's a sign of the marriage it's the wedding ring that God's people are to wear. But God's people didn't want to wear it. They didn't honor the marriage. In fact, this is consistent also with the first exile. Because in Genesis 3 verse 23, where it talks about Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden. It says, then, therefore, God sent Adam out of the garden of Eden. And that word sent out in Hebrew is shalah. Shelah is their word for divorce. And so this is more than just a kicking out and we no longer get to live in this paradise. But what the Bible wants us to see is that this is a divorce. There is now separation in this marriage between God and his people. And see, just like the first exile, what we just read—it's first and foremost about a broken relationship between God and His people. The people are not just expelled from the land; they are cut off from God. That's why in Hosea one, when the when the prophet describes all this, in fact, read Hosea one through three this week. But 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 God says, "Ami, my people have become low. Ami, not my people." And I think Ezekiel 16, which is where I want to camp for a lot of the sermon this morning, I don't think there's a chapter in the Bible that sums up the Old Testament more than Ezekiel 16. Let's turn there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And this is found on page 595, if you have a Bible like mine. And I'll basically describe uh, what's going on in this chapter. And by the way, this is written by the prophet Ezekiel to the people of God after they've been exiled when they're asking, why did this happen? And Ezekiel now is explaining why they're exiled. And he starts this chapter off by depicting Israel as an abandoned, orphaned, little baby girl Left in a field to die, and what you need to know is this happened all the time in that day. Women had no status, so everybody wanted to have males. In fact, this is going on in other parts of the world. And so, if you are going to have a girl but you want a boy, you just take the girl and you leave her in in some field and just and let her die. And Ezekiel depicts this, but he says, "But then God comes along." And he takes this little orphan girl in his arms. He adopts her into his royal family. He adorns her with beauty and worth. She grows up and becomes beautiful. In fact, God says in verse 7, he says, You grew up and you developed and you became just the most beautiful of jewels. And then when she's old enough for love, God does something stunning. He takes her, Israel, to be his bride, and she becomes queen of the Most High God. In fact, look at verses 10 through 14, how how this reads. I clothed you with an embroidered dress. I put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen i covered you with costly garments i adorned you with jewelry i put bracelets on your arms and necklace around your neck i put a ring in your nose which in those days was actually a, a symbol of status i put earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head so that you were adorned with gold silver your clothes were of linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth Your food was of fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful, most beautiful, how it should read. And you rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you. you You were made beautifully perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. And what you need to know in these verses, well, we didn't actually read them because... In verse 8, he says, Later I passed by and I looked at you and I saw that you were old enough for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you. I covered your nakedness. It's a picture of marriage, by the way. I gave you my solemn vows. I entered into a covenant with you. I entered into a marriage with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I want us to capture this because the Bible gives us so many images of of who God is and and how it is that we relate to him. I mean, he's the Lord and we're to fear him. He's our father and we are to trust him. He's our friend and, and we can cast all our burdens upon him. He's our shepherd and we follow him. He's our rock and we hide in him. But there's none higher than this. The God of the universe reveals himself to his people as a lover, as a husband who is ravished with love for his bride. The God of the universe, his love, it's passionate, it's spousal, he bends low, And he proposes. I'm going to tell you, this is all over the Bible. For instance, the Exodus is not just so that God could set people free, but so that God could take Israel to himself to be his bride. Sinai is a wedding ceremony. The Ten Commandments are wedding vows. The Song of Solomon is is more than a king's love for his queen, but it's also a type. It's a a picture of God's passionate love for his people. In fact, Jews to this day call Song of Solomon the, the holy of holies of the Bible. In Isaiah 54, it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. In Isaiah 62, it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so your God will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And see, because Israel's relationship with God is is a marriage, think about what this means. Marriage is the only relationship that's exclusive. I can have many friends, I can even have many sons and daughters, but I can only have one wife. And see, for my marriage to, to, to thrive and be all that, that marriage is intended to be, Libby must come absolutely first. She must come before my hobbies, she must come before my work, she must come before my friends, she must come before sports, she must come even before my own children In fact, the moment I start putting something ahead of her or in front of her for too long, my marriage begins to erode. So will yours. That's why the greatest commandment is Shema. Hero Israel. Love me alone. No other lovers. And you love me with everything you have and everything you got. In fact, this, this is why to this day, this is the first thing that comes from a Jew's mouth. And it's the last thing they say before they go to sleep at night. They say it as a prayer. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. And see, I don't know when, when you think of a good marriage, and I'm not talking, you know, some young marriage or people have been married for a couple of years, and they're kind of like this crowbar couple, but I'm talking more um, you know <laughs> yeah. good. You can picture that. I'm talking to those who've been married 20 years and 30 years. They have this unique quality about them that make them lovers. It's it's where you can see how they just, they, they mutually delight in the other. They, they mutually find joy in the other. They, 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 they mutually adore their spouse. And see, this is so much more than physical because as we get older, we start to get gray. Our bodies start to fall apart. And our attraction to our spouse becomes something so much other With the potential to become so much more. Because we start to fall in love with what's underneath. All those little traits. All those little habits and idiosyncrasies. The way my wife laughs. The way she talks. The way she cries. We love them. We find them beautiful. And see, this is, this is what God is saying about his people. I mean, in verse 7, when he says about his bride that you are the most beautiful of jewels, he's saying, you're beautiful to me. I mean, God is almost this, this, this love-smitten husband. He's ravished with love for his bride because our God reveals himself. As a lover. And see, before you and I ever make God our pearl of great price, we need to know that we were first His pearl of great price. We are the most beautiful of jewels to Him. And this is all over the Bible. But let me ask you has this been pushed in your heart? Because those who know this about God see, God is so much more than useful. Or so much more than, and I have to. They see God as supremely beautiful for who he is in himself. And their relationship with him is not marked by duty or petition. It's marked by adoration. David said it. He said, I, I seek you. I long to see your face. I want to see the beauty of my God in the temple. So the little orphan girl grows up and becomes a queen. Just imagine how many times she'd hear things like, wow, do you realize how fortunate you are? Do you realize what you have? Do you realize what was going to happen to you? Do you realize you probably shouldn't even be alive right now? And see, everything that Israel is, everything that Israel possesses, it's all because of her husband, her gold, her silver, her beauty, her splendor, her wealth, her fame, her worth, her status, even life itself. But rather than using all this for the glory of her husband, she has the audacity to use this to attract other lovers. In fact, Ezekiel uses two images, and the first is that follow. And I'll be honest with you, if I read this in the actual Hebrew, it's it's almost too shameful to read. I'd probably have to have a bag over my head as I read it. Because Ezekiel basically will use two images, idolatry and, and, and adultery. He uses these images interchangeably. Look at verse 15. Here's the big but statement. But you trusted in your beauty. You used your fame to become a prostitute. More literally, more edgy in the Hebrew, a whore. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make... Gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution, such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took fine jewelry that I gave to you, the jewelry made of my gold and my silver, and you made for yourself male idols. You engage in prostitution with them. Skipping down to verse 20, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough, says the Lord? And then you get down to verse 25, and it says, And you went to Main Street, and you built your lofty shrines, and you degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. And again, I'm not reading this for shock effect, but I I, I want you to hear how this sounds in the actual Hebrew. You You set up shop at every Main Street and you spread your legs like a whore to everyone who passed by. That's addiction. That's sexual addiction. Israel, you've become a sexual addict. And see, the reason why why Ezekiel uses this graphic language, it's not that her sin is is reduced to sexual addiction, but what sexual addiction is, physically, Israel has now, is now that spiritually. Because we all understand that sexual desire is this obsessive force, but not all of us feel the force, the obsessive force of idolatry. But what Ezekiel is showing us is that idolatry and adultery are the same thing. And see, an idol is, is simply anything that we look to other than God, where we can get our sense of worth, our sense of value, that thing that will heal our ache or fill the void, anything that makes us feel loved or esteemed. And see, you might not think it's that big a deal to have these things in your life, but whatever that thing is, could be your job, it could be your career, it could be your possessions, it could be your health, it could be your children, it could even be your ministry. What that thing is, it has become a lover, and you are in bed with that thing. Because anything that you and I look to right now besides God to provide for us our primary sense of worth and value our sense of identity, that thing is an idol, a lover, and we're committing adultery. And see, I don't think anyone's going to make a big deal today about you being in bed with your job or the pursuit of money and things or the need to give your life to being so good at a sport because you find all your sense of worth in that. Boy, if we find out that you're in bed with a girl. But to God, they're the same. Because all idolatry is idolatry, is adultery, because this is a marriage. And see, in a marriage, God is giving more than just his will and his decrees and even his name. But what God does in marriage is he gives his very heart. He becomes vulnerable. Because love, when we love someone so much, it always makes us vulnerable. And therefore, we need to see sin not just as breaking the rules, but sin is breaking God's heart. And so sin not only makes God an angry king or an upset father or a disappointed friend, but sin makes God a wounded lover. Have you ever sat with someone whose spouse has been unfaithful and they have the wedding album before them and they're going through the pictures and and all this emotion of hurt and anger? Welling up. That's what Ezekiel 16 is. It's like God's going through the album. He's looking at the pictures. In fact, to read Hosea 1 through 3 this week. I'm telling you, this is a longer version of this. In fact, poor Hosea actually has to marry a, a prostitute to give this picture to Israel. Jeremiah 2, verse 2. God says, Israel, do you remember... Do you remember when we were young lovers? Do you remember how, as a young bride, you just loved me, and you followed me, and you sought me? What happened to us? So if you're wondering why God's allowing 2 Chronicles 36, because he is this kind of God, our God is a husband. And this is why verse 39 of Ezekiel 16, it says, God gave Israel over. Just like in Romans 1, God gives them over. He's giving them over to their other lovers. He's giving them over, as it says in Romans 1, to the sinful desires of their heart, to their shameful lust, to a depraved mind. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is God's worst form of judgment. I will take his discipline any day of the week, but don't give me over. Don't give up on me. And Ezekiel even says this. I mean, this is... The one-two punch. He says, and all these lovers that you've given yourselves to. Look at verse uh, 39. He says, then I'll hand you over to your other lovers. They will tear you down in your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes. They will take your fine jewelry. They will leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you. They will stone you and they will hack you to pieces. See, I want us to see this. (laughs) Because this is what our other lovers and our idols will eventually do to us. They can't save us. They can't love us. And all they will do in the end is they will lay us bare. They will destroy us. And they will hack us to pieces. And see, right now in our story, boy, we are such a long way from God's original intent God's people, in God's place, enjoying the presence of God. And I'll tell you, maybe one of the most devastating moments in the story for the people of God is actually 70 years later, after the exile is complete, and God's bride Israel, they actually return to the land, they rebuild the temple, and at the dedication of the new temple, I mean, they're following all the prescribed orders, doing all the prescribed prayers, and this is what it says in Ezra 3, verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because there was so much noise. They wept. And why'd they weep? I mean, I always thought they wept because, oh, they're looking at this temple and what this temple looks like compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. But that's not why they wept. What happened when God first entered his tabernacle and then when he entered the temple? There was wind. There was fire. There was earthquake. And the people fell face down. And this time, there's nothing. God didn't come back. God's absent. All we have is an empty building. How sad would that be right now? If we were all here right now, and, and God wasn't here. Just empty. And we were singing our songs and preaching our sermons, and, and do, but no God. No God, and we have nothing. This is the significance of of Acts 2, Pentecost. The wind and the fire, and the earth shakes because the Lord is entering his temple. And all the earth kept silent. See, when God's in his holy temple, we will silence. We will silence. So for 400 years, there's no God, God's not speaking, there's no real prophet of God, there's no real priest of God, there's no real king. I mean, you need to feel the ache, you need to feel the absence and what the story just, it it begs, it begs of a messiah, it begs of of a king even greater than David, a conqueror who's going to come and put everything to rights, someone who's going to come and who's going to cleanse the house of God, who's going to lead God's flock back into the arms of God. The story needs a prophet, one greater than Moses, who's going to speak the words of God. The story needs a priest, it needs a perfect high priest, who's going to come and cleanse them atone for their sins and, and make them presentable to God again. The story needs a mediator. It needs one who's going to come and is going to restore them, who's going to reconcile the marriage and bring the sons and daughters of Adam home. See, this is what the story leaves us aching for. What's God, what's God going to do? Well, let me end with this. Look at verse 59 of Ezekiel 16. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my vows, my oath, my marriage, by breaking my covenant, my marriage. I'm going to give you what you deserve, God says in verse 59. But then in verse 60, he says this. He says, but I remember the covenant, the promise And i made with you, and I will establish an everlasting covenant, an everlasting marriage with you. And I don't know if you feel the tension of this, but this right here is the narrative tension that you find throughout the whole Old Testament. Because on the one hand, if you're unfaithful to God and you're unfaithful in this marriage, you get what you deserve. I mean, you're left in the cold. Marriage is done. But then also, not only does God say over and over again, you know, you turn from me, I'm going to turn from you. You leave me, I'm going to leave you because I'm a holy God and I'm going to execute my justice. But God also says over and over again, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to remain faithful to you. And I mean, when you put these two together, it almost seems contradictory I'm going to leave you, but then I won't leave you. I'm going to punish you, but then I'm going to have compassion on you. And you're left, what is it? And see, the reason why God can say both is because of verse 63. Then I will make atonement for you and for all that you've done, and you will remember you'll be ashamed, and you'll never open your mouth because... Of your humiliation declares the Lord. See, so the reason why God can say both and do both is because He's gonna make atonement. Kippur in Hebrew. Yam Kippur. This is the day of atonement. And what does atonement mean? We'll break the word apart at one minute. God is going to make himself one with his people. He's going to reconcile the marriage. In fact, in Hebrew 2, verse 14, he says, Oh, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to lure you. In Jeremiah 31, and, and verse 31 to 34, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. A new covenant. There's going to be a new marriage. I'm actually, this time, not just going to give you my laws, but I'm going to write my Torah in your heart, and you're going to be faithful to do all that you said you would do. How's God going to do this? How? How? Remember, God's love is spousal. He's a lover. He makes himself vulnerable. He will do anything to woo his people back. Without stealing Neil's thunder, in the ancient world, the way a man would propose to his bride-to-be, he'd take a cup of wine. And I don't know if he'd get down on his knee. But he'd say, this cup is my promise to you. And see, what that wine symbolized was the life that he would be offering to her. And the way the bride would say yes is she'd take that cup and she'd drink the wine. Insane with all that I am and all that I have. I give myself to you. The Bible says that Jesus took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant. It's the cup of my blood. Because this is the kind of relationship God offers us in essence. What he is doing is he is offering the lost sheep of Israel their wedding ring back. He is, vi- he is inviting them back into the marriage. And he is faithful to his people. But in the New Testament, it's broader than that. Not only is he faithful to the sons of Abraham, but he's also faithful all the way back to the sons and the daughters of Adam and Eve. It's for all of us. you see how spousal his love is? Do you see how vulnerable it is? I mean, spouses open their hearts to their bride. Spouses even strip themselves naked. Do you see him strip naked for you? You need to know Jesus hanging on that cross. That's spousal love. Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for heart is, is the the cross is the heart of God wrenched open, literally. I'll tell you, he's not like other lovers. Other lovers expose you, but rather he's the one who's exposed. Other lovers are the ones that beat you up and they hack you to pieces, but rather this lover is the one, he is the one who's made naked. He is the one who's beaten up. He is the one who's hacked to pieces. Because for the joy set before him, he endured all this. And that joy is you. It's you. And the reason why you and I can drink the cup of his spousal love, the cup of the new covenant, is because he drank the cup that God placed before him in Gethsemane. The cup of God's anger, anger, the cup of God's wrath for all sin. And God put that cup before him and said, son, will you drink it? And Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. He drank it every last drop. So that today he can offer us the cup of the new covenant. Have you drank it? Are you in the marriage? The God of the universe is a lover. He literally comes down and he He his need to you, and he proposes to you. And what about your other lovers? Shema Israel, Erena Elohehu, Erena Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Thank you, Jesus. There's so much more than you even have to be. Open the eyes of our heart to see the bankruptcy and the destruction of other lovers. And open our eyes to see our maker, who is our husband, Trust yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Can we just pause for a second?